Welcome to the Jew and Gentile podcast. I am your host, Chris Katolka, and with me is none other than the Jewish sage himself, a one and only Mr. Steve Herzig. Rabbi Steve Herzig, how are you? Ay, 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 no rabbi. <laughs> the no sage. rabbi. The sage. Uh, not even a sage. You are the sage. Just a guy who's lived long and prospered. Which is a sage. That's <laughs> okay. right. You've got the experience. Welcome in, everybody. We've got a great show for you. We're continuing our study on the book of Revelation. I've gotten some great comments, Steve, about us endeavoring to go through this amazing last letter of the Bible. So it's going to be good. It's a journey, Chris. It's a journey. We're glad everyone's along for the ride, but here we go. Welcome in, welcome in. Just a fresh reminder, the Jew and Gentile podcast is sponsored by FOI Equip. Have you been to an FOI Equip class yet? If you haven't, then I want you to go to foiequip.org, and uh, there you'll be able to find out what FOI Equip is all about. In fact, in the next few days when you log on to FOI Equip, we should have an entire list of our courses available to you out through April. I can tell you right now that the January and February classes are going to be fantastic. We have, if you want to learn about the Tabernacle uh, especially from David Levy's book, which is a fantastic, one of our best-selling books it's here. It's a classic. Yeah. It already is a classic. Here at the Friends of Israel, then you're going to want to join Dan Price, who's the Assistant Director of International Ministries here at Friends of Israel. He's going to be teaching about the tabernacle and the importance of it in the Old Testament and what it means for us as believers today as well. It's going to be a three-week class. And then uh, after that, in February, we're going to have a one-night class of... Uh, what it's one like, long night. One long it's night. It's going to be one long, probably for and, you, because you will be doing very little talk. And probably a crazy night, too. Undoubtedly. So we're going to have Steve and uh, Fred and Eva Schweig and uh, and Lorna Simcox and uh, potentially even Mitch Treesman. You might not know these names. Maybe you do know these names. But the one thing you do need to know about them is that they're all Jewish believers, and they're going to share what it's like to be a heaven-bound Hebrew. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that was the way I was promoted a long time ago. That's right, the heaven-bound Hebrews. Uh, what it's like being a Jewish believer, you know, kind of maybe some of the stereotypes or something. I always think it's funny. I just think sometimes Christians don't know what to do with a, so are you Jewish or did you convert to Christianity? Or It can make a person's head hurt for a moment. It's the opposite what happened in Acts chapter 15. Yeah, exactly. It really it's is. It's the opposite. That's only. Right. Christians do it very nicely. They're quiet about it. <laughs> if you read the text in Acts 15, there was quite a commotion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Before In Acts 15, it was, how do we incorporate Gentiles into this thing? Uh, today, it's, how do we incorporate Jewish people into this thing? Yeah. You know, we'll talk a little bit, Chris. I want to get to Acts 15 because I want to give you the exact word. So tell them about... Uh, well, so as Steve's going there, I'll just say this too. Uh, we're, pretty soon, we're going to be posting our video from last week, our classroom last week, which was David Brogg, the former executive director of uh, executive director of uh, Kufi, Christians United for Israel, came on and spoke to a great class on Thursday night uh, about Christian support for Israel and gave a great lecture on the history of Christian Zionism. So, all right, Steve, you look like you're ready. I am. In verse 2, it says, Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about the question. So then they get there and says, now the apostles and elders came together to consider the matter. And when there had been much dispute, (laughs) so they disputed and they sent two Jewish people. There was much dispute to who's going to talk. Then they get there with other Jewish believers. By the way, this is not a, I'm, I'm not speaking badly of it. 
they were passionate. Oh, they, yeah. They had views. They had convictions. And the meeting, the meeting they, they had a dispute. Yeah. Not a small dispute. And so I think it'll be fun when we get Jewish believers together who are going to talk. And I guarantee you're going to hear... Now, we didn't do it that way. Yeah, exactly. Whatever it is, I can't even. T- we uh, we didn't do it that way. Chris, I, I was celebrating a Passover with Sephardic Jews. I'm Ashkenazi, and we're celebrating Passover. We agree it's Passover. We agree that God passed over. We understand a seder is to be held, and so we're we're there. So we're taking the charoset, and oh, I said this is good charoset. Yeah, it's not like your Ashkenazi stuff. <laughs> We're Sephardic. We put oranges in ours. Oh, I know. It's good. That's right. It's better than your stuff. It's the right way. So here we are on the same team, and there's much to speak. In Israel, you know, I've spent time over there at a hospital doing volunteer work, and you get to just know the average Israeli person, hang out with them. And I learned about the cultural differences between the various, uh, you know, uh, distinctions between Ashkenazi and Sephardic and Mizrahi. And it's so fascinating to hang out with a Sephardic you know, uh, Israeli, because they go, those Ashkenazis, it's all wrong. They do it wrong. They don't say it right. They don't do it. But they're And passionate. of course, we have Yiddish. Yeah. They go, Yiddish is crazy. It's Ladino. It's Ladino. It's, that's right. You got to speak Spanish-y kinds yeah, of words. Exactly. Uh, Ashkenazi, no, 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 no. And by the way, again, I say it lovingly. It, when you, If you could be the person watching this interaction, you'd love it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like a show. It's like a show. Do you know? I I don't want to harp on this for too long, but it is. It's a great conversation to talk about the fact that the church was not born in just perfect unity. You know, there wasn't just the apostles weren't just in complete unity all the time. It was definitely driven by the Holy Spirit. But there were they disputed over issues. They had to work out issues. Together, which I think is what God has called us to do in by the power of the Holy Spirit, is to take the disputes and to unify around them and to and to have harmony even in the midst of disputes. So sometimes I think we have this picture that the early church just functioned absolutely perfectly. Oh, yes, whatever you say. Now That's right. here's the deal. I think once decisions were made. They moved on. They moved on, right. And that's a typical Israeli today, too, Chris. I think you'll verify that. They they are passionate. They're yelling back and forth and do and then Okay. Yep. We're all friends now. Let's go get that's a right. cup of coffee. <laughs> that's right. Well, anyway, that's just a great reason for you to join us for our a night roundtable with Jewish believers that will include Steve Herzig and Lorna Simcox, uh, who has been the um, editor-in-chief of Israel My Glory. Uh, we're also going to be posting um, David Brog's fantastic, what like I said. a great—ah, Chris, if they missed it, if our listeners missed it, I have good news. It's there on YouTube. Yep. They could watch it, and they should watch it. He did—he was— Fantastic. Now, in preparation for um, the next classes, we'll have all that information coming up so that you can begin to register now for classes all the way out to April. And let me just also say this. They're free. I can't, Maybe you're just tuning into the podcast now and you're listening to us and you're going, man, these classes, I, w- I wonder what they cost. They cost nothing. We just want you to come. We want you to be involved in what's going on at Friends of Israel. We want you to feel like you're partners uh, uh, and what we're doing with no dispute, with no dispute. <laughs> All you got to do is register. Come on, you you might disagree with us, but oh, that's fine. But we'll just silence you on Zoom, so it's okay. <laughs> 
It's a Zoom call. Anyway, so please uh, uh, go to FOI Equip. But the FOI, uh, uh, this whole podcast is sponsored by FOI Equip. And I just want to say this. In the last few weeks of the year, we are trying to raise $10,000 to help continue the ministry of FOI Equip, which includes the Jew and Gentile podcast. So if you're listening right now, uh, your money will help to continue uh, posting and publishing and uh, and and putting all of the FOI uh, or, or sorry Jew and Gentile podcasts on YouTube and Facebook and and all of our podcast platforms. Uh, the ten thousand dollars will go to that. The ten thousand dollars will also go to continuing to be able to produce classes for those who watch. Steve, all around the world, we get people from Australia, we get people from from Europe and South America and Africa and all around North America as well uh, who come to our FOI equipped classes. And as you heard earlier, they're free. But uh, somebody's always got to pay at some point. So uh, if you would love to contribute uh, because you love the classes, then please join us for the uh, the, uh, please give for the FOI equip classes to continue to grow them and to expand them and to continue to share them for free. And then finally, FOI equip. Maybe our listeners don't know this, but we have interns and our interns are going out and, and they've partnered with FOI equip and they're not only take learning from FOI equip. All the, through the podcast and through the classes and all the things that we offer. But then they're taking what they learn, Steve, and putting it to action. I love the interns, Chris. You meet with them on a weekly basis, and their term is coming to an end uh, next week, mm-hmm. I believe. Uh, but during the weeks that uh, they've been on since September, September 15th to December 15th, uh, they're such a joy, and they are passionate. And uh, being on as a guest a couple of times, they too dispute, yep. but but in a Gentile kind of That's way. That's right, exactly. But they're <laughs> Steve, they're out in their communities, and they are ministering to the Jewish communities right Amazing. where they are. Amazing. And that's why I want you to hear from one of our interns, Alyssa Ruddle. This Ruddell. is great. Chris, this is great. Tell tell them the back—I think we should tell them the backstory. We decided to uh, have her come on, but we didn't have a lot of lead time. She didn't have a lot of lead no, time. I called much- her 15 minutes ago, and I said, can you just send me a quick audio of you— Sharing about uh, the importance of supporting FOI equipment. You didn't coach her. No. Nope. You didn't say anything to her. You just said, Can you? I, I need it in like two minutes. Could yep. you do that? Sure, no problem. And now listen to this. Hi, my name is Alyssa Ruddle, and I am currently an intern with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministries. It has been a wonderful program of learning and developing a love for the Jewish people in my community. But we wanted to come on and just say that the Equip program is an immense program that grows people's love for the Jewish people. If you're looking to give to a program that is actively investing in people's lives with a love for the scripture and the Jewish people, this is it. Any amount is greatly appreciated and will definitely be used to impact people's lives. Um, thank you so much for considering, and we hope you do are doing well, and we pray that the Lord blesses you. Bada bing, bada boom. Thank you, Alyssa. Alyssa, I don't know if you're going to be listening, but I got to tell you, with no prep time, your boss just asks you, hey, can you do this for me? I need it like ASAP. (laughs) And it had to be first take, right? That was the first take. She's just a dynamic speaker. Amazing. But but even more importantly is that she's out there. She's in her young 20s. She's, you know, young 20s, just a graduate of college, and she loves Israel and the Jewish people. She's become an intern of FOI Equip. So not only are your donor dollars going to go to helping expand our teaching, but it's also going to go to taking that teaching and putting it to action in people like Alyssa. It really is an an investment. investment. That's right. So You know, Chris— FOI invested in you. 
It's true. You were a young intern. How many years ago is that? Not 2004. 2000 well, and guess what? I was <laughs> I was back back when dinosaurs were on the earth here. I was a young intern. Yes, you in were. In 1977. I've seen the pictures. Ay, 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 Afro, ay, ay. the whole thing. And guess what? People invest, donors invested in me. Yep. And uh, I'm thankful for Alyssa. I'm thankful for our listeners. Look, if you can't give, you can't give. We understand that. But we want to give people an opportunity who can give to do so. To give, go to gofoi.org forward slash FOI equip. Again, that's go FOI as in Friends of Israel. Go FOI.org forward slash equip. We want to use these remaining weeks of the year to try to raise $10,000 to set us up uh, so that we can continue to teach biblical truth about Israel and the Messiah while also continuing to comfort the Jewish people, uh, which is our mission statement here at Friends of Israel. Steve, um, we're, we're going to enter into our discussion now on Revelation. We're continuing Revelation chapter. One, but you and I found an interesting um, TikTok video. Ay, ay, ay. It is, uh, Chris, tell him about. Uh, I, I can't believe, well, I do believe. Uh, it, anyway, just play it. It just saddens me. It well, does sadden this me. Is a, this is a professor of Bible who runs a, uh, he's actually become more of a social media kind of guy on a social media platform called the Bible for Normal People, which means if you don't agree with them, you're not normal, which I think is funny. But uh, he's definitely um, changed his opinion over the years, and he's talking about the book of Revelation, and he's actually responding to a, uh, a, a somebody that got on TikTok and said, hey, all these prophetic events are happening, yet no one's paying attention. So he gets on and says, here's the reason no one's paying attention to the prophetic events. So let's see if I can cue this up pretty quickly and get it going. Here we go. One of your eyes and nobody is talking about it. Well, not to be harsh, but the reason no one's talking about it is because this is nonsense. If there's one book of the Bible you do not want to read literally or predictively, it is the book of Revelation. It is apocalyptic literature, which means it's highly symbolic. That's not just shooting from the hips. That's very, very well known. We have examples of apocalyptic literature in the Hebrew Bible and from other sources in ancient Judaism. And the book of Revelation fits right into that mold. To read this predictively or literally in any sense is a very big genre mistake. It would be like reading Lord of the Rings, for example, as a history book, or reading an op-ed piece in the newspaper as if it were the sports page. Right? You just can't do that. So, unfortunately, it keeps perpetuating. You know, the book of Revelation is probably the most abused book of the New Testament, certainly. And uh, it just keeps going because it just seems like, well, it's got to speak to us. It has to say something to us and to our time. But it, the literature just doesn't work that way. Actually, I think reading the book of Revelation the way this uh, uh, creator did is, it's really exegetical malpractice. Mm. It should stop. Exegetical malpractice. That means the way you interpret it is absolutely false and wrong and dangerous almost, uh, which I completely—if if he's the Bible for normal people, then consider me crazy because that I actually do not think 
that uh, you... Yes, he's right. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. 100%. But you have to ask yourself a question. We talked about this last week. Jesus considered himself, his most his most favorite title for himself was the Son of Man, which goes back to Daniel chapter 7, which is also apocalyptic literature. So if we're going to throw out the book of Revelation and say, you can't look into that, it can't be predictive, it can't mean anything to us, that you're doing it wrong, that's exegetical malpractice, to say that means that then whatever Jesus titled himself is wrong. And then the meaning, the way that you look at Jesus is wrong, because it all roots back to apocalyptic literature. A lot of the prophecies of the Bible Come back to apocalyptic literature. Friends of Israel. That's right. That's who we are. That's Ten right. Ten years before, highly symbolic, the dry bones. Oh, people thought our founders were crazy. Israel? Never going to happen. Israel did happen. The dry bones are Israel. The, the kinds of symbolism that's in the Bible, you have to be careful. I, exegesis is important. Very important. But in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, if you and that's why we're taking a, a couple uh, podcasts to go through it, it's foundational. What happened to John uh, and what he's going to uh, get from the Holy Spirit to be revealed, to be unveiled, uh, is extremely important. And yes, we take it that way. Yeah. I mean, we take it for we what— We do believe it's predictive. Yes, Because I would also argue—I mean, I, I don't—he didn't touch on this, but the Church Fathers conti- conti- uh, considered Revelation predictive. Uh, John considered it—I mean, when he's writing it, he's—I don't think John the Apostle, Steve, is writing this going, oh, this is just apocalyptic literature. It means nothing for nobody, even if it's just for the people here during this time. It's not even going to mean anything. That's not the way the, the Apostle John wrote this, especially for the reason that we're about to talk about, because we're talking about the revealing, the unveiling, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. He's come to reveal himself in the last days. And so what does that look like? And that John gets that vision. So I think it's exegetical malpractice, malfeasance to just simply tell Christians means nothing. That's crazy to me. And by the way, that's why so many churches will never study the book. Exactly. Yes. And I've been to I, I go to churches and I ask, when was the last time your church went through the book of Revelation? And people come up and say, It we we haven't done it. Thank God there's many times which I'm thankful. I've been to churches, oh yeah, we did that just a year ago. That's great. But that's rare. Yeah. It's rare. And uh I'm glad we played him. Uh I'm glad people heard it. This is this is becoming more the norm uh, in our culture, when at one time in our culture we took all the Bible seriously, mm-hmm. all of it, yeah, and we still do here at Friends of Israel. hundred percent, yep. All right, so we're going to look in John's vision. We're picking up in verse 9. We looked at the fact that last week we saw Jesus, the Son of Man, and now we're going to see John's vision as it begins to unveil itself more about who Jesus is. Steve, should I pick up here in verse 9? Please do. It says, I, John, your brother— and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So we know that John is on the island of Patmos and he was put there by Domitian 
um, who was the emperor of Rome at that time. He put him there because of, John tells us, because he was sharing the gospel and he was uh, proclaiming that Jesus, and you have to imagine, this does run contrary to what, uh, the, the gospel does run contrary to um, totalitarianism. So, uh, of you know, you go to China, China today, you, it's not easy to be a Christian in China. They lock it down because essentially what you're saying as a Christian is, I believe Jesus is the King of Kings. I believe Jesus is the one with ultimate authority. So whatever earthly ruler there is, God put there in your place. So Xi Jinping of China, you're just merely a man that God put here. Jesus is the one in control. And they don't like that. So they'll control it, all. and you yep. see that in you see that even in uh, the USSR in, in Soviet in the Soviet era, where they would control religion because if Jesus is the ultimate authority, the the King of Kings, then guess what? You're going to be put in a gulag, or you're going to be put somewhere because you're saying there's a higher authority than your state. And we are actually beginning beginning to see aspects of that here. Yeah. Uh, yes. There's no question about it. We've seen it over the last few years. It manifests itself differently than maybe we thought. We're not like them in China, but there's other areas where you say, wait a minute, the government is penalizing people of faith. Yes. And it's happening here. And so this becomes important because as we're talking about John's vision, the reason he's on Patmos is because he was telling the Roman citizens, oh, there is a higher king than the one that you the, the one you think is in Rome. There's the king of kings. Oh, and he's coming back, and he's going to come back, and he's going to bring his glory, and you're going to want to be on his side because you should fear. We're going to talk about this. Yes, you should are. fear what's coming. Um, and so, uh, and he, so he's saying, I'm on Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Um, and on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a, a, a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. He's sending out a letter to seven churches, and he's and Jesus is describing himself. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first, and the last, and I want you to write this in a book. Yes. And Chris, you know, we tried to title this um, <coughs> podcast, this time— uh, you should be afraid. Yeah. You should be afraid. And we did this on purpose because I feel like we're living in a culture now where we're saying you don't need to be afraid. You, you know, uh, we, 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 churches, I think, are running from the reality of what the gospel is all about. The gospel is a gospel of love, but it's a gospel of love because God is rescuing you from impending judgment and 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 hell and uh yes everything that revelation is about the wrath of god being poured out so is it love that that the uh, god saved you yes but what did he save you from he saved you from judgment uh but we don't talk about I, the the churches are having a harder time these days talking about judgment and in fact steve you found an article um, that talked about this at uh, three reasons, I think. The, uh, where'd that article get uh, off to? I don't know. It's around here somewhere, Chris. Uh, here it is. Nope, that's the Jewish fighter. Ah, here it is. Got it. The headline is, Chris, this is from a 2014 article by Jonathan Merritt uh, of RNS, Religious News Service. Three reasons we're afraid to talk about hell. Mm -hmm. uh, and we title ours, You Should Be Afraid. 
Uh, Chris, in chapter one, Jesus, the Messiah, the one who was the is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, the one who came humbly, the one who was baptized by John the Baptist, not this John, the writer of the epistle, but John the Baptist, the one who came and suffered and died. He's going to be unveiled mm-hmm. in his glory. Uh, there are examples of Jesus before he incarnated. You know, he was the captain of the Lord's army in Joshua. Mm-hmm. And do you know what happened when Joshua saw him? Fell down. Fell down. Boom. He was down. <laughs> he was down. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> <laughs> what happened in Matthew? The disciples, James and John and Peter, right? Peter, James, and John, they're before him. And all of a sudden, he manifests his glory. What did they do? Boom. Boom. They were down. They were down. (laughs) Down for the count. They are down for the count. Chris, I think we need to talk about this. Why are they down? Why does this happen? Because the natural man. Well, even think about this. Uh, We've talked about this. The moment that God's glory comes down into the tabernacle, what happens to Moses? Boom. (laughs) He can't even be in there. I got to get out of this place. The moment the glory comes down in the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, boom, the priests have to leave. Isaiah, the moment he's ushered into the presence of God, he falls on his knees, and then all of a sudden he starts blabbering all the sins out in front of God because the holiness of God is just permeating enough that, yeah, we are fully aware of the of our of our wrongs, our sins, our trespasses, our iniquities, and they just come pouring out the moment you see and interact with God's holiness. And 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 that we should camp here for a little while because if we understand the holiness of God, if we can get a glimpse of the holiness of God, we are in major trouble. Yep. That's You go all the way back to Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve, they blew it in the garden. I'm not—look, we all would have done it, but they were the ones to do it. And all kinds of trouble came upon them. Tsurus. Tsurus. They had lots of Tsurus. And their camped in the middle is going to be the seed of the woman. And that's really the unfolding of the whole narrative is looking forward to them. Great. Thank God we, we you and I met the Lamb of God— that takes away the sins of the world. But if you don't meet the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, then you're stuck with what you are, a fallen person. Mm-hmm. With a, We're all fallen, but w- those who are in Christ are fallen with his righteousness. The whole book of Romans talks about being justified, not by ourselves, but with Christ. And so anytime you see the full effulgence of Jesus Christ— trying to be described here by John, the idea, what happened when Jesus is walking on the water, there's a storm, they they fell down, they, they worship, they're in the boat, boom, they're down. I'm telling you, we, I, I'm not trying to make fun of it, but the presence of God, which I haven't fully experienced, I, I, I've experienced Jesus Christ, I know that he loves me, I, I know that I I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I read about these things, but when you're in his presence, everyone seems to fall down. Then what happens? After they fall down, after they can't even look upon him, then what happens, Chris? Then he reaches his hand out, and he places it on John. And then what does he say? Do not be afraid. That's when you have to—but, folks, 
we need to be afraid. That's right. And the actual posture toward holiness is to fall on your knee, to be frightened and and not in, yeah frightened. You know, I think something we don't like that term of being frightened. I think it's our culture. I don't think our culture likes the idea of being frightened or scared or fearing, but we also know from the scriptures that fear is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge and understanding of who God is, because that means you've placed yourself in a position under his authority, that you're willing to listen to where true godly wisdom comes from, because you fear the one whose wisdom is where it's emanating from, where it's coming from. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we like fear. We don't like those things anymore. Uh, in our culture, we, you know, you know, Chris, there it was, ruins our self-esteem. It ruins our, you know, we we have counselors and and therapists that we go to to talk about those fears. But there is still a healthy, there is still a component in someone's life that is a healthy fear. Hundred uh, percent. There was a video of this gal, a flippant gal who comes before a judge. I don't even know what her crime was, but she she had no idea what court culture should be the judge is there he's talking to her she is like so disrespectful to him and as she talks he said she she makes fun of him she makes fun of the system so i i don't care about this and she turns around and walks away and he said hey wait a minute come back and there you know there's court attendants they have to there's police there they bring them back bring her back and so he said, uh, you've gone from one day that I uh, sentenced you, it's now a week. And she, a, a week, she flips him off and goes, oh, wait, wait, come back. Now he gave her a year. Oh. And then she, all of a sudden, what happened? We take, some of us as human beings, take the scriptures that way. We, some of our comedians flip off God mm-hmm. as if he's, Nobody mm-hmm. doesn't know anything uh, and disrespectful. Uh, no, we should fear if we fully understand who God is. And it's hard for us to do that. If we would be wise to <coughs> go after those who've encountered him, see what they do and say, how can I, how can I, how can I come before God as an unholy person, mm-hmm. because his holiness will just boom. I'm down. I I think of the t- tabernacle again, and the, the the Levites were staged around the tabernacle. That's where their tents were, and then the tribes were outside. Uh, you know, and the reason it explains the reason that the Levites were stationed around the tabernacle was to protect. Do you remember this? To protect the tribes from the holiness of God. Yep. That that God even said, I'm putting a barrier here because, you know, honestly, God's holiness, I don't want to say it's like a ticking time bomb, but it, if it's mistreated and, um, m- like you said, uh, if it's mistreated, not dealt with with respect and honor, uh, then his glory and wrath could be poured out even among the Israelites who are encamped around. So God's holiness, as we're seeing here right from the beginning— of Revelation chapter 1 is incredibly important, and Jesus reveals himself as the one who comes. It says, his, he's, uh, his um, let's see what it says here, he's the son of man, and he says he's dressed in a robe, reaching down um, to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest, and, and his hair on his head was white as wool and white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. 
His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And in his hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. I mean, it gets your attention as the reader that this isn't the Jesus that we saw just walk. I mean, it's the same Jesus, but the one walking among the people, and now the Jesus that we see in Revelation, they were always the same. But now we're seeing him revealed. Exactly. Unveiled. Unveiled. And think about some of these things. Uh, as Paul, as John describes him, his head was like uh, white like wool. We associate white hair with wisdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Bible does. And you got to stick to the context. So, yes, these are things that, that are symbolic. It, hey, his hair was like white, and he had a long robe. Do you know judges wear long robes? You know, in academia, they wear these oh, yeah. long. What is that? Oh, they put that on for respect. You know, even in some uh, religious <coughs> groups, uh, denominations, there's sometimes the pastor will. He doesn't go up to the pulpit unless he wears a long robe. Why? It gives them a sense of authority. Of authority. Right. So he's got white hair. He's got a long white robe, and his eyes are like a flame of fire. Well, if we've read the Book of Revelation. And we're now reading it for a second time. We say, wait a minute. I read about that towards the end of the book. When Jesus returns in Revelation chapter 19, his eyes are like a flaming fire. That's right. Judgment. Fire is, has to do with judgment. Brass or bronze. You Wait till Dan Price starts talking about the tabernacle. Bronze is a prominent uh, item that's used. One of the... the uh, the ingredients, the, right. the ingredients to build the tabernacle. Yep. Brass has to do with sacrifice and judgment. And so brass here, or bronze, is, as, as it says, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice, Chris, if I can take a little license here, ever been to Niagara Falls? Yeah, it's rushing it, waters. It's, this, this isn't a little sprinkle of water from your faucet. His voice boomed. Mm-hmm. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls or some other place where the water falls, when he speaks, it reverberates. So John is— Which is a lot like what we hear from Mount Sinai as well. When God is revealing who he is to Moses, it sounds like rushing water. And the so. whole—I love that part. <laughs> Moses, you go up there. Yeah. <laughs> We're staying down here. We want no part. It was frightening. Yep. And I'd submit to you. Same concept. It's good to be frightened. Yep. Because if you're going to be frightened of someone, be frightened of the one who holds life in his hand. Mm-hmm. Be frightened of the one who can forgive you and raise you up. Be frightened of the one who offers a way. Understand that there's no hope for you. I'm frightened of that. But be glad that he cares for you. That's right. It's it's that that's why we all should be frightened. That's right. We should all fall on our knees. We should all fall on our knees till we feel that hand on us that says, "Don't be afraid." But Chris, this article, you want to comment? There's three reasons. I have. I'd like to uh, comment at the end. I've asterisked a uh, the last paragraph here, but there's three reasons. Tell us the three reasons that. Well, you uh, have the paper over oh, there. Okay, so I'll tell you that. I know the last one. I remember the last one, but you. The first, the first reason is hell doesn't feel fair. Yeah, <laughs> I agree with that. It, hell, yeah, that's right. It doesn't feel fair. How long do we live? Uh, the Bible says if you live seventy, that's yeah, that's that's good. Eighty by strength, 
that that's good. Some people even live longer, but most live less than a hundred years and somewhere between 75 and 95. Mm -hmm. I think everybody, most everybody falls into that. And then you're talking about an eternity. Mm -hmm. So from the rational mind, human mind, which by the way, the rational mind is a fallen mind. That's right. That's what Jeremiah we're, says. We're, we're fallen. That's we, right. And we're limited. We don't know. Some people know more than others. I joke, top 10% of the lower third of my class. So you know more than me. Okay. But you don't know that much either. Yeah, nope. I'm way down there. <laughs> we, we don't know that much. So it doesn't seem fair, except that the perfect judge is the one who calls the shot. That's right. He's perfect. He's perfection. So, and they talk about that, too, when it's, you know, a lot of times in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, there is, hey, this doesn't seem fair, but God, especially in the Psalms, this doesn't seem fair, but God is the righteous judge. So it's going to be fair no matter what. Uh, you know, even when David is is asking and pleading for forgiveness from God for his sin, he knows he's the righteous judge. And so technically, hell is fair in the sense that we all deserve it because of our fallen nature, and God is the judge, and yet that's the picture. We don't like we don't like this. Can I just say too, I always appreciate, and he's not even a Christian. Um, Dennis Prager's take on hell always is a, a good one for me. Is that, you know, why is there a hell? Well, because what's the point of living a life? You know, if there was no hell, if there were zero consequences for life, zero consequences whatsoever, then just go eat, drink, be married, steal. Go steal right now. You could just steal from your boss, you could steal from the bank. Guess what? No consequences. And if you get away with it, oh, great, you know. But the idea that to think that there would be no consequences in life for your actions, even for an unbeliever, doesn't, you know, like like Dennis Prager, who's not a Christian, he still understands, you know, there's got to be consequences to the things that we because do. Because he believes the Old Testament, and the Old Testament teaches that. That's right. Listen what it says here. Brian Jones, who's a pastor and author, I'll tell you the name of the book he wrote, but here's what he says. Many Americans quantify their sins and then weigh it against not just punishment, but eternal punishment. He's He wrote a book, Hell is Real, But I Hate to Admit It. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so... He says, when their sense of fairness is projected on God, they have a hard time thinking God would prescribe such a thing. I get it. But again, we're fallen. So that's number one, Chris. Number two, hell sounds harsh. (laughs) Go figure, right? It's uh, it says another reason people are hesitant to discuss hell, Jones says, is because the only people who talk about it are hateful Christians. That's actually not a bad point. It's true. There are Christians who who talk about it like they're glad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah there's a they story. Hold picket, they hold signs up at rallies and all this stuff, you know, uh, about repenting, you're going to hell, that kind of uh, there's a, stuff. There's a joke, Chris. I use it all the time when I uh, preach on Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. And the story is this congregation hires a pastor, uh, and and he preaches every week. And every week he, week he tells the congregation they're going to hell unless they trust Jesus. And he lasted 18 months, and they fired him. They mm. fired him. So they hired a new pastor. And they, the pastor comes, and he tells them the same thing. But 18 months come and go, and he's still preaching. So a congregant went to the chairman of the board of the church and said, I don't understand it. We hired the first pastor. He told us we were going to hell, and we fired him after 18 months. We hired this guy, and he's telling us we're going to hell. But 
He's still here. Why? And the chairman of the board stroked his chin, you know, a very <laughs> stalling for time and said, you're right. First pastor talked about us going to hell unless we trust Christ. And every week he sounded glad. <laughs> this new pastor, he tells us, and every time he says it, it breaks his heart. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. Mm-hmm. So look, it is harsh. It's horrible. We should be frightened of it. And he, the, the, he says, the author says, uh, they associate Christians with Westboro Baptist Church. Yeah. And that is a church that sends people to funerals of, of, of vet, army vets, and they say they have signs that are vicious signs that do terrible things. Well, hey, that's not God-honoring at no. all. That nope. doesn't do any good, uh, and it's, it's not right. But just because hell sounds harsh and there's a group who misuses it does not make the truth any less, Yeah, and, and that's an issue. And then the third reason, Chris, hell scares off spiritual seekers. That's what they're saying. Uh, all in all, I think preachers are more skittish about talking about many things that can turn off to the seeker. Hell is probably just one of those topics. Jones and Boyette both noted that in addition to numerical growth concerns of churches, that's another reason. Uh, they're worried about how many people come into church, and if we tell them about hell, it's going to turn them off and they're going to leave. And that's a real issue. Mm-hmm. Let me just read the last uh, paragraph, second last paragraph. As moral people, hell is often difficult to justify. Understood. From our point of view, Chris, we don't want to talk about hell. We don't want to send anybody to hell. We don't want. We don't. We don't want to deal with it. We we don't want to. But we're not the ones that are calling the shots. As rational people, hell is difficult to understand. I agree with that. As emotional people, hell is difficult to fully accept. But the fact remains that the Bible and Jesus talk an awful lot about hell. But our reticence to discuss it doesn't make it any less real, and our resistance to imagine that we are bad enough to go there doesn't mean we won't. That's right. And that's why it's good to be scared, Chris. Yeah. My sister, uh, who listens to this podcast, she's one of the six. She's one of the six. She's one of the ones who complained, I think. That <laughs> That's right. No, she's not a complainer. But we'll say she is anyway. I'm just joking. Uh, I, my sister uh, was the first and only Christian, Jewish Christian, hired by a Christian nursery school. And they only asked her one question. Will you teach our curriculum? This was a Baptist church. I don't even, to this day, she doesn't understand why they even hired her. She wasn't a believer. Mm. But she said, I will faithfully teach whatever it, whatever your curriculum is to those kids, I will. And so, Chris, every day, five days a week, she was reading and learning the curriculum mm. to share with the kids all the little songs, all the little Bible verses. She was reading them. And she believed in, in our Judaism that there is a hell. And she had no idea how is it that... She, I don't want to go there. What do I do? And she began to understand through teaching little children that the Savior, the Christos, the Mashiach yeah. is her Messiah. Right. Yep, exactly. She would tell you, I was frightened into hell. Mm-hmm. John Bunyan. Into heaven. 
Sorry, I was frightened. I'm like, <laughs> key ingredient. I was frightened into heaven because of hell. We we just read a short uh, thing about a guy who was writing about John Bunyan, who a Christian way long ago, hell frightened him, mm-hmm. and he believed so he could go to heaven. I know that sounds weak to some people. My mother told me when I first became a believer, oh, you need a crutch. Yeah. Hey, if you have a broken leg, you need a crutch. Chris, I'm proud to say I can't do it myself. I know that I, I can't get into heaven on my own. I have no problem saying I'm broken. I need a fixer. Mm-hmm. Who can do that? There's only one person, God himself. That's right, because it even says here, right in, in, our, in our chapter, it says, when I saw him, I fell at, uh, I, when, I, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, "Do not be afraid, I am the first and last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. I love this, and I hold the keys of death and Hades." So if there's one person that can bring you back from your path to hell, it's the one who holds the keys to death and Haiti. If there's one who can take the dead and bring them back to life, it's the Son of Man, the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, who has the keys to death and Hades. And so that's why we wanted to talk about Hades. That's why we wanted to talk about hell, because it is a real thing, and it real it does need to be discussed, and there is a healthy relationship that we see in the scriptures between being afraid and then God telling us, don't be afraid. There is a healthy relationship there. In, the, in Daniel, it says, those who sleep in the dust of the earth, they die, shall awake. There'll be a resurrection. Some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's right. You know, when Jesus put his hand, isn't it interesting? Chris, your father, you have little kids. Uh, I have grandkids now. There's something about the human touch. A little child, when they're sick, what do they want to do? They they come, they rush to you, they want to be held, they want to be—we pat their back, we stroke their forehead, we put our hand on their shoulder. What does Jesus do? We're afraid. Mm-hmm. John's afraid. They were afraid in Matthew. They were uh, the, command, uh, the captain of the Lord's army. Joshua was afraid. You touch them, don't be afraid. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, all the things that were bad become good. Mm-hmm. There's this assurance. If we come like children, we think of our parents the way God made parents, there's this security and strength in knowing when they touch us, uh, things can be better. That's what happens in chapter 1. Don't be afraid. Mm-hmm. You, you, yes, you should be afraid when you see me, but don't be afraid. I love you. That's right. That is, uh, uh, that's a great reminder. I'm glad that Steve came into my office today and said, we need to be afraid today. So mm-hmm. it's good because it's a reminder that he did reach his hand out and he does comfort us. So we're going to be moving on to chapter two in our next episode as we looked at, look at the seven churches. Uh, Steve, are you ready for the seven churches? <laughs> I'll be ready when I have to be. <laughs> I love those seven churches. I love those seven churches, too. All right, Steve, we've got some news for everybody. Why don't you go ahead? Well, this comes from Bert Bart. Uh, I just love the headline. Jewish UFC fighter to Kanye West. Yay! (laughs) If you've got a problem with me or my people, 
come see me, bro. That's a- and there's a picture of him. Yeah, he's the. I wouldn't mess with him. <laughs> I'd be afraid. That's right. <laughs> I'd be really afraid. This guy, he. There's a picture of him. His name is Natan Levy, and uh, he just had a victory, uh, and he's raising his hands uh, in this victory. Chris, I don't think he has one ounce of fat. Not one. Not- he's got this crazy six-pack, and <laughs> I mean, I am telling you, he is the kind of guy that if I saw him, I would say, I'm not messing with this guy. Uh, Levy concluded by declaring he would not stand for hate as he warned those who bully others around him. I will not stand for anti-Semitism, he said. I won't stand for any racism. Not around me. Can You know, this is such a great commentary on why Israel exists today, too, Steve, because this is exact. I mean, in kind of a microcosm, it's the reason that Theodore Herzl, who is the guy behind me, if you're watching YouTube, he's this guy right here with this beard. Uh, he's He was the one that said, we need a place where we can defend ourselves, where we can speak up for ourselves, where we have self-determination, because... Jewish people were often, well, they were for for millennia. They were a part of the societies of the world around them, and they were dependent on the nations around them. And they rarely, if if somebody spoke up and said, "Over my dead body," uh, like like Natan Levy here, they would find anti-Semitism. But this is an Israeli UFC fighter looking at Kanye West and with that Israeli chutzpah, which I love because I think that is ingrained in Israeli culture that we defend ourselves and we defend our people. Whether you're talking to me as an Israeli or a diaspora Jew or uh, around the world, he is speaking up for his people. And I don't think that Jewish people had those same voices. I mean, think about I. I Rarely do you hear about the Jewish. Uh, there's there was Jewish resistance, but they their voices weren't as loud as somebody like this. Israel empowers it, people. Exactly. It empow- it, look, he says, "Don't bully anyone around me, or I'm gonna find you." <laughs> Earlier this year, Levy dedicated a victory to Holocaust victims. This week was Remembrance Day for the Holocaust. He said, "I would take a minute of silence for every victim we had." But it would take 11 and a half years. Think about that, Chris. Yeah. I think the broadcast could end before that, he said. So I will sell my fight kit and the profits will go to the Holocaust victims who made it and are still alive today. What an amazing thing. Who would have thought that such a violent thing? (laughs) This is fighting. But he is thinking of his own people. He's thinking of a way to turn it into a mitzvah, if you will. And uh, he's defending the court. There's no question about well, that. And Steve, it also, I mean, since we have been talking about Kanye, which I, I even to, you know, even now, Steve, I hate even giving him any any time to even, because at this point, I wonder how, um, you know, how much of it is a mental issue. And I hope it is a mental issue. But uh, the, the reality is, though, that we have seen a rise of anti-Semitism since we've even been talking about Kanye West. So it's not, re- you know, I hope that Natan Levy's, uh, um, you know, if anything, Kanye West is kind of a voice for anti-Semitism right now. But it's there. And the thing that I think Kanye has done is kind of brought to surface the reality of how much anti-Semitism there is, even in our country the United States. So it, it's there, and I, he's speaking out I'm against glad. it. I'm glad. Now, Chris, why don't you read uh, uh, the 
This one is from this Times, is Times of, of Israel. Israel. Yeah, well, this is uh, the outgoing Prime Minister Yair Lapid of Israel uh, is writing to world leaders, 50 world leaders, in fact, to stop a Palestinian push to uh, refer the conflict to The Hague, the International Court of Justice um, at The Hague. Um, this actually comes after a U.N. General Assembly vote on November 12th, I believe, that basically is the first of two votes that was approved in order to bring before The Hague uh, the idea of Israel, Israeli practices and settlement activities that's affecting the rights of Palestinian people and other Arabs of occupied territories. It would passed 98 in favor, 17 opposed, and 52 abstentions. And so it has to go one more time before the um, before the UN General Assembly, before it could be pushed onto the Hague, and that's why Lapid is writing because Le- because it is a concern. Because if it goes before the Hague and the Hague, the International Court does make an opinion, the opinion could define what the boundaries of a future Palestinian state are, which would include East Jerusalem, which would include the old city of Jerusalem, which would include the Temple Mount, and that the UN is completely overlooking the fact that Jewish people have had a long heritage. In this area. And so Lapid is writing these 50 leaders and saying, hey, the reality is this. This isn't helping the Palestinians. This is meant to delegitimize Israel. This is meant to delegitimize our security concerns. This is meant to really throw Israel under the bus and, and you know, what we're trying to do uh, with the situation. And he argues this sh- the, 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 a future Palestinian state should not be dealt with in the international court. Uh, uh, these issues between Israelis and Palestinians should not be dealt with in the UN, should be dealt with between Israelis and Palestinians on the ground. And so uh, it's really good. In fact, Steve, the one thing I wanted to highlight here, if I can find it really quick, because it may, it was interesting. Oh, here we go. Uh, among the countries that voted against the UN yep. resolution, mm-hmm. of course, Israel, Australia, Austria, Canada, the Czech Republic, Italy, Germany, several Pacific Island nations, and the United States. Many European countries abstained, which that's pretty typical of European countries. But here's the ones that were voted in favor of the uh, of the resolution. Bahrain, Egypt, Jordan, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Ukraine and the United Arab Emirates. And I, I the thing that stuck out to me was, Steve, we we have a new peace deal. It's the Abraham Accords. And, you know, you'd think with a peace deal and uh, the, the, we trade ambassadors, we have, uh, we've got a lot of relationships, or not we, but the Israelis have a lot of relationships with the Arab countries now, with Gulf countries. But a lot of these, Bahrain, uh, uh, um, United Arab Emirates, uh, they voted in favor of the uh, vote to push this to The Hague. And so, you know, it just goes to show that Honestly, there could be peace between leaders, but a lot of times those peace deals don't always translate to, you know, actual peace, even in the UN, where you think, oh, we're friends now. I I would never, you know, hurt you or whatever. Here, they're still pushing resolutions that delegitimize Israel in many ways. Yeah, Chris, this this is an issue because we know in the United Nations, continually, they pass legislation against Israel as though they were the worst country on the planet. Oh, man. And they never pass resolutions against those that are the worst <laughs> countries on the planet. We've read those stats before about the fact that Israel has had hundreds of, what well, feels like hundreds, I think it's just shy of 200 uh, resolutions brought before them from the Human Rights Council or from the United or from the General Assembly, but it's like uh, South Co- or North Korea, 
five bupkis. Yeah, nothing. So in comparison. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, just a little news. I, I you know, uh, Yair Lapid didn't really get much uh, opportunity to be the prime minister. He got a chance, and you know, honestly, he did some good stuff when it comes to security and standing up for Israel's rights in it, the UN. It, it it turned out to be okay. It did. All right, here we go, Steve. Yiddish. Okay, Chris. Yiddish word of the day. Uh, before we announce the Yiddish word of the day, maybe some of our people would like to get their grandkids here. That's right. Or grandkids. Or like for you, you could get your kids because this Yiddish word, they turned into a cartoon character. That's right. And the word is, Chris? Shrekken. Shrekken. That's right. Which really is a long form of Shrek. That's <laughs> Shrek to be frightened to terrify and the reason we chose that was because today we talked about that healthy relationship between being frightened to be it's okay to be scared it's it, you, just like john fell to his face and got, jesus reached his hand out and said do not be afraid or joshua or the israelites whatever the case might be isaiah uh, isaiah yep all Peter, of them, james and john they all were frightened they were shrek they, they went boom that's right. They were frightened, but then a hand reached out and said, do not be afraid. So, and I'd say the story of Shrek is the story of a, I don't even know what that thing is. I don't know what he is. But he has to learn to not be afraid. So there you go. You know, there you go. <laughs> no, people are afraid of him, but he's a nice guy. That's right. That's right. No, no, no. Oh, he's that's a, right. It's reverse. People it's are reversed. scared of they him. They look at him and they think, oh, this guy is going to get me. And he just wants to live in the swamp and mind his own business. That's right. That, with a donkey. <laughs> A talking donkey, which I might add is a biblical thing. That's right. It does happen. All right, everybody. Yiddish word of the day. Shrekin to be frightened or terrified. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. This Jew and Gentile podcast as we endeavor through the book of Revelation. Just a fresh reminder to be sure to go to foiequip.org. To hey, donate. We love you to donate. Yeah, to donate, to help keep our program going, to help our classes go uh, keep going, to help uh, uh, uh Support new um, FOI equipped interns. Like Alyssa. Like Alyssa. You can go to gofoi.org forward slash FOI equip. Again, that's gofoi.org forward slash FOI equip to donate to help us raise $10,000 before the end of the year. Hey, thank you so much for being with us. We'll see you next week.